Welcome to this week's episode of The Read Out Loud, a weekly biotech podcast from STAT. I'm Meg Terrell. I'm Adam Feuerstein. And I'm Damian Garde. It's Thursday, February 4th, and well, we had a plan for this podcast all laid out, and then, of course, huge news lands in our lap just as we're about to start recording. Right, so we're going to change things up on the fly. Uh, First, we'll discuss the announcement from genetics testing company 23andMe that it is going public. We'll also hit on the retirement of longtime and widely respected Merck CEO Ken Frazier and the somewhat surprising decision by the FDA to extend its review of Biogen's drug for Alzheimer's. Then there has also been a ton of COVID vaccine data in the past week, so we will bring on vaccine expert Dr. Paul Offit and get his take on the many results that we've learned about in recent days. Finally, our stat colleague Casey Ross joins us to discuss his investigation, which raises questions about the way the FDA is approving new medical tools based on artificial intelligence. But first, a word from our sponsor. Hi, I'm Angus McCauley from STAT. I'm here with Chris Benko, the CEO of Conexa, a software company that powers patient-centric research. The newest version of the Apple Watch includes real advances in terms of collecting health data using fit-for-purpose sensors. Chris, do you think it will help advance the overall use of wearables in clinical research? The Apple Watch will definitely impact clinical research, perhaps most of all by helping participants feel comfortable taking the trial home with them. The days of awkward, clunky-looking sensors are over. For research to truly benefit, it's critical for patients to feel comfortable incorporating these technologies into their everyday life. Today's tools blend right into their routines, and they're not just willing, but often excited to wear them. For more information on Conexa, visit conexahealth.com. That's K-O-N-E-K-S-A health.com. 23andMe is going public. Merck's longtime CEO is retiring, and the future of Biogen's Alzheimer's drug just got a little more complicated. There's been a whirlwind of news this week, which gives us quite a bit to talk about. Yeah, so let's start with 23andMe. The world-famous personal genomics company is going public by merging with a blank check firm started by none other than Richard Branson, the billionaire founder of Virgin Group. Right, so the transaction is through one of the uh, oft-described SPAC deals, which is to say Richard Branson started a company that existed only as a means of acquiring a future company, and that future company turned out to be 23andMe, uh, which is being valued at $3.5 billion under this merger. But the upshot, I think, is really that this long privately held company that we all know about and have all talked about um, is finally going to become a publicly traded entity, which brings quite a bit of transparency. We're going to learn a lot uh, in the coming months and years about that business. I think that's one of the things I'm most excited about, really, to see, you know, 23andMe going public. And I think, you know, our colleague Matt Herper was was just talking about this on Twitter as well. But, you know, there's there's been a lot of focus on the health of the consumer genetics business over the years. And it seemed like it was waning for a while after a major boom just a couple of years ago. Uh, and so to actually get to see um, that kind of interest from consumers in quarterly financial statements will just be really, really interesting, um, as well as seeing the kinds of collaborations that they're doing with pharmaceutical companies to try to contribute to drug development. That was something that we heard from Ann Wojcicki uh, and Sir Richard Branson, who I never thought I would interview on a biotech story, um, talking about this morning that that is one of the major growth areas for the company. Yeah, right. Doesn't 23andMe, they have a they have a collaboration with Glaxo, SmithKline, right, Meg? Yeah, yeah, they do. It's an interesting kind of sliding door situation in personal genomics in general, because we've seen in, in recent months, Ancestry.com, or maybe it's just called Ancestry now, which is 23andMe's principal competitor, has been kind of retreating from the health space and instead focusing on 
the word that it named its company after. And, you know, looking at 23andMe by contrast, obviously going public where Ancestry has not, but it seems like from Meg, as you mentioned, the statements of Ann Wojcicki and of Richard Branson, really digging deeper into the health aspect of their business. And furthermore, you know, it, the way it might dovetail with biotech and pharma and the discovery of new drugs. So it's really interesting that you mentioned that ancestry aspect, Damien, because, you know, when we had Sir Richard Branson join us on CNBC to discuss the news, he mentioned that's how he really got interested in 23andMe was through personal sort of searches through his own ancestry. But he said that healthcare is, you know, the best investment one can make because not only should you, if you do it well, get a good return, but you also are contributing to important work on developing new medicines and solutions to diseases. You know, we also had Ann Wojcicki on and the first question I had to ask her was actually in reference to the last time I saw her in person, which was back in May 2018 at this Las Vegas conference called Health or HLTH. And there were all kinds of questions swirling, you know, would they ever go public? So that was the question I asked her then. And here's what she said. I know that it's miserable to be a public company. I don't know if there's anyone out who wants to be a public company? Who wants to give earnings? I mean, it's horrible. So I'm personally looking forward to Anne's first quarterly conference call. <laughs> Next, Merck CEO Ken Frazier disclosed his plans to retire in June, which will end a nearly 30-year career at the company. Ken Frazier took over as CEO at Merck in January of 2011. So, you know, he'd been at the helm really for 10 years. And he was an important leader, not just in the pharmaceutical space, but really in the business world as a whole, particularly on issues of social justice. You know, of course, we all remember in 2017 around the events of Charlottesville, Ken Frazier was the first CEO to step down from President Trump's Manufacturing Council, and he became such an important voice over the past year around George Floyd's murder, uh, talking about what business needs to do better in terms of equality and ensuring opportunity for people. You know, we had him on CNBC uh, a number of times, and, and one really memorable time um, in June of 2020, uh, where he talked about this. When there's unrest, people put out statements. They put out platitudes. They say, this is terrible. We decry racism. Uh, we believe that we ought to build a just society. I think business has to go beyond what is required here before the pandemic. So yeah, I mean, you know, in a, obviously CEO now, he's been at Merck for almost, I guess, three decades. Um, you know, he's really, uh, you know, someone, if you think about him in, in these later years and you think about Merck, uh, and it's a company that's really kind of reinvigorated itself. When I think of Merck, I obviously think of Keytruda, you know, it's a cancer immunotherapy drug, which, you know, I think it's like a $14 billion drug right now. Um, you know, and it's really a company that has always been known for its research and, you know, based on, you know, science. And I think, you know, Ken really accelerated that that effort to kind of develop new medicines, you know, Keytruda being one of them. We actually um, on CNBC today kind of took a look at what Merck's top uh, drugs were in 2010 versus what they were in 2020. Any guesses? Top drug 2010 for Merck? Was it Vioxx? <laughs> You're off for <laughs> no, several what? years. Yeah, that was earlier. That's true. That was, that was a lot earlier. I've lost all track of time. <laughs> was it Zedia? Zedia was top five. Um, it was Singular, wow. $5 billion drug. Number two was Remicade, $2.7 billion. Number three was Genuvia, $2.4 billion. In 2020, Keytruda was $14.3 billion of Merck's sales. Genuvia was number two, $5.3 billion. And Gardasil was number three at $3.9 billion. So guys, any thoughts about what 
uh, Ken Frazier is going to do next. I mean, he's 66 years old. He's still relatively young. Well, I was emailing with Les Funtlighter, a longtime health investor, about Ken Frazier's legacy. And, you know, he said he was the most approachable of all the farm CEOs. He didn't shut himself up in his office. He would talk to literally any investor. And Les said he hoped that he would run for office. So I wonder. That's always been interesting, the connection people make between Ken Frazier and politics, because I feel like I, I've heard statements like that, like, oh, he would be a great political candidate, but they're always from people around or observing Ken Frazier. I've never heard Frazier himself say anything like that. And similarly, you know, Meg, you mentioned those two um, incredibly memorable actions that he took in the wake of Charlottesville and then in the wake of the killing of George Floyd, both of which were sometimes painted as, oh, a CEO unafraid to wade into politics. But um, Frazier himself said that he didn't view either of those things as political whatsoever. He viewed them as things that, you know, if we purport to live in a just and fair society that aspires to do better, then people of influence need to talk about these things. And he as a CEO has that influence, but didn't see it at all as anything, you know, partisan or, or, or related to politics. So I wouldn't be surprised if, um, you know, the the trappings of running for office and dealing with that are something that Frazier would look at as not ideal for how to spend his future. Hmm. Well, you know, the last time I saw Ken Frazier in person, I think was uh, the summer of 2019. At a previous time I'd seen him, he had told me just sort of offhandedly that one of the first things he reads in the morning is the obituary section of the New York Times, um, just because he he loves reading about the way people have lived their lives and the things people have achieved. And uh, so when I interviewed him uh, at that summer of 2019, not to be morbid, but I, I asked him, you know, what he hoped his obituary would say uh, one day in the New York Times. And he said he hoped that it would show that he was committed to social justice. And I thought that was really interesting. You know, this was at a bio conference fo focused on the drug industry. And um, and that was what he said. And uh, obviously, he is still with us. Uh, this is not a uh, <laughs> talking about his life. This is talking about his tenure as a CEO. But I thought that was really um, notable. Finally, Biogen's long quest to win approval for a new Alzheimer's treatment uh, took a twist when the FDA extended its review of the drug by three months. And normally when you see these kinds of extensions, it's not considered good news. But this time it was. Damien, can you explain that? Yeah. So Biogen stock went up on this disclosure. And, and I think the only explanation is that in the Kremlinology, FDA Kremlinology that's going on in the minds of investors, they perceive the three-month delay as the FDA trying to do everything in its power to find a good reason to approve this drug, which has been deeply controversial, and we don't need to relitigate it here. But basically, there's a large number of people who don't believe that Biogen has demonstrated that the drug works. And there's also a number of people within the FDA we know um, who believe that it does merit approval. And so that fight is still playing on, presumably behind the scenes. But you know, reading the tea leaves of the delay, a lot of investors saw it as, this is a good sign for Biogen's ultimate success at the FDA. You know, the other thing that to consider here is uh, the naming of the next FDA commissioner. Uh, we don't know who that person is, but there are two names that have been kind of thrown out or thrown into the ring for that job. And you know, uh, one of those people is is Jenna Woodcock. Uh, she, you know, she's a longtime FDA official who is sort of been known to sort of champion regulatory flexibility um, and very much emphasizes patient advocacy. And so people feel, I think, that if Jenna Woodcock took the job or she got the job as the FDA commissioner, that that may lean in favor of Biogen and the approval of aducanumab. You know, the other candidate is Joshua Sharfstein. He's a Johns Hopkins University professor of health policy. And I think Sharfstein is known more for being more conservative, arguing for more rigid standards 
standards of drug approvals at the agency. So people feel like if Sharfstein gets a job, that may weigh against Biogen. To say we got a lot of data on COVID-19 vaccines in the last week would be an understatement. Results from the Oxford-AstraZeneca vaccine, the Russian Sputnik V, Novavax, and the one-shot vaccine from Johnson & Johnson. We even got early results on a vaccine tablet from Vaxart. But these trials, as all of them have been in the past year, were done at lightning speed during the pandemic, so they're a little bit messy. At least some of them. Joining us to help sort it all out is Dr. Paul Offit, director of the Vaccine Education Center at the Children's Hospital of Philadelphia. He's also an infectious disease physician and a developer of a rotavirus vaccine. He currently serves on the FDA's Vaccines Advisory Committee, so he'll likely be quite busy over the next few weeks and months. Dr. Offit, thanks for being here. Thanks for asking me. So we just got a lot more data on COVID vaccines. On the whole, what do the new results we've seen in the past week mean for the overall picture for vaccines in this pandemic? So it gives us more information about how many more weapons we're going to be able to have in this fight against uh, as COVID-19. I think it's all very encouraging. And so we'll see as as we, we get more published data exactly um, how much these data mean in terms of this fight. So let's go one by one through some of those vaccines, starting with the Johnson & Johnson results that we got last week on Friday morning. So this is a single shot, and overall it showed 66% efficacy in preventing moderate to severe COVID-19. Now that figure was affected by the presence of variants around the world, particularly in South Africa, where the efficacy was just 57%. What's your read on, on these results and on what role this vaccine could play in fighting the pandemic? These are press release data. So, we, you know, when they submit for approval through emergency use authorization to the FDA, then we will see all the data. And then I can answer this question more intelligently. But here's what I would say. I think it's encouraging. If you have 72 percent efficacy against moderate to severe disease in the United States, that's good news. I think there were something like 40 to 60 cases of hospitalization and death in these trials. And they were all in the placebo group, including in South Africa. I, th- I think what I take away that's most interesting for me is that the goal of a vaccine is to really keep you out of the hospital, keep you out of the ICU, and keep you from dying. That's the goal of this vaccine. And so you worry about these variants. I mean, is this South African variant going to escape recognition by vaccine-induced immunity so much so that that doesn't happen, so much so that people who are immunized, say, with two doses of the Pfizer vaccine or the Moderna vaccine or other vaccines are still, when they come in contact with the South African variant, likely to be hospitalized or worse. And, and, And these data are reassuring in those regards, but again, need to see all the data. Well, on to another press released um, (laughs) set of results from last week, Novavax, which is a smaller company, of course, whose first product, if it succeeds here in the U.S., would be this COVID-19 vaccine. They showed 89% overall vaccine efficacy in trial results last week, also affected by the variants. So they don't yet have large phase three data from the U.S. That's expected in March. And in these interim results, they only had two severe cases, both in the placebo arm. So what can we make of these? I think in general, um, again, it's encouraging. If you look at the the sort of phase one data from Novavax, they induced very high levels of neutralizing antibodies. So it was interesting to see how this would play out. I'm curious to see with the South African data how the sort of severe disease broke out. I know it was only about 4,000 people in that in that study. It was a phase 2B study. Um, love to see those the, the specifics of those data, which hopefully we will, and, and, and it'll be interesting to see the data in, in uh, U.S. as well. On Tuesday of this week, we got an update on the Russia Sputnik V vaccine. We saw 92% efficacy in a 20,000-person trial. Now, the way they calculated that seemed a bit odd. They started counting cases three weeks after the first dose 
or essentially on the day that they gave the second dose. Uh, and they also lumped moderate and severe COVID cases together. So we don't know how many severe cases actually happened in that trial. Your thoughts on that? Right. It, it was, so it was roughly a 22,000-person trial, three-to-one vaccine to placebo. So there was only roughly about 5,000-plus people in the placebo group, not a lot of people. But I thought it was generally encouraging. You had roughly 92% efficacy across all age groups. I thought that was good. And remember, the first dose, which is the replication defect of human adenovirus 26, is exactly the vaccine that, that Johnson & Johnson is using, exactly the vaccine with which we at least have some experience, because that was the vaccine that was used to, to limit the uh, Ebola virus uh, outbreak in West Africa. So it, it'll be interesting. Interesting to see whether these data are then repeated by other groups. Um, but this vaccine, I think, is being used not only in Russia. So presumably not only will we have efficacy data from this trial, but hopefully effectiveness data in the real world in Russia. I think this vaccine has also been uh, sent to Venezuela as well. So we'll see. So with the Sputnik V data, you know, some earlier results had been disclosed via press release. And I think there was some skepticism about how to interpret those. This latest data that you were just discussing was published in The Lancet. Um, does that, you know, give you more confidence in the data, or do you still see any reason to to doubt the results that have been reported? Well, you, you always like to um, see things reproduced in, in the world of medicine and science. So, um, And there is always a matter of trust. I mean, the Lancet, like any journal, is not going to go to Moscow and then look through all the original data to make sure that nobody was misrepresenting things. You know, with Russia, it was a little concerning when Vladimir Putin back in August said, you know, we had this is a great vaccine. All the boxes have been checked when they had really just finished a phase one trial. And, and so it always makes you worry that there's a degree of nationalism that sort of overlays this, this vaccine effort. So, but I think, um, you know, the proof is in the pudding. There is no hiding once vaccines are out there. You'll see just how effective they are when they're out there. Well, speaking of nationalism, um, the pride of the UK, the Oxford AstraZeneca vaccine, you know, this week they published a preprint. So again, not yet peer reviewed, which pooled all of their data from trials in the UK, Brazil, and South Africa. Now headlines blasted that the vaccine was shown to significantly reduce transmission. But reading the paper itself tells I think a more confusing story. They said one dose cut total PCR positive cases by 67%, which the researchers suggested means it has, quote, the potential for a substantial reduction in transmission. But the same figure for two doses was lower, 54%. So why would one dose cut transmission and two doses cut it less? And is this even actually telling us that this vaccine reduces transmission? It's hard to make sense of that. Again, when you talk about transmission, you're really talking about transmission of infectious virus. And when they do PCR testing, you wonder whether are they just looking at a genome, viral genome, uh, which is not necessarily infectious virus. That's number one. Number two is that with, uh, you know, with the messenger RNA vaccines, Pfizer and Moderna, they really didn't look uh, hard. So, so if they had looked harder to see whether they were preventing viral shedding with their vaccine, we may find the same result. And it's also not binary. There are a number of vaccines actually that we currently use in the United States who do, do not prevent viral shedding. Um, so the rotavirus vaccine, the influenza vaccine, nonetheless, we've been able to dramatically reduce those diseases with those vaccines. So I think we shouldn't get too hung up on the, the are we preventing asymptomatic shedding? Because even if you don't, people who are generally immunized tend to shed virus less than people who, who aren't immunized. So I think that the, we'll see how that all plays out in the real world. So finally, there were some extremely early stage and also delivered via press release results this week from a company called Vaxart, which is developing a tablet vaccine, an oral vaccine for COVID-19. What did you make of the, the news from Vaxart? I'm not sure what that vaccine is. I mean, I've been told that it was a DNA vaccine. I'm asking you, is that true? I, I, I haven't really seen the, the data on this. I believe it is also an AAV5, but it's orally formulated. 
Um, and there is, you know, some, I don't want to describe it as magic just because I personally don't understand it. There's something else going on in there in terms of the adjuvant and the delivery technology that according to them makes it, you know, orally available. I await to see the data. I, I really have no comment. That basically sums up all of your emails to me as I emailed you about <laughs> phase one and phase two data. <laughs> Uh, so zooming back out on, you know, COVID vaccines as a whole, Dr. Walid Jalad from UPMC brought up an interesting point this week. He notes, we're testing all of these vaccines in an environment where we're all masking and social distancing. Of course, both the placebo and vaccine groups were doing this, so it doesn't negate the relative effect of the vaccine. But he asked, in a world with no masks and distancing, if that exists sometime in our future, are the vaccines as likely to protect against severe disease? And is there any way of really knowing that? Right. So, so the question, and it's always a question, is, is when you mask in social distance, which is not perfect, you can still be exposed to virus. That, 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 however, that if you're masking in social distancing, you would be exposed to less virus. And there is definitely a so-called dose response curve, meaning the more virus you're exposed to, the more sick that you would become, the more ill you would become, the more seriously ill you would become. So what will happen then if we take off our masks and then are exposed to larger quantities of virus? Um, we'll see. I mean, the, the studies that are done, for example, in South Africa, um, and other, other regions, in South, in South America, I think will help to answer that question to some extent. We'll see that. That's why it, in many ways, it's hard to compare these different trials because they're done in different sites. It would be most uh, informative to do head-to-head trials. And then you, then you, in the same sites, then you really have a better sense of how these viruses or vaccines compare to each other. So there was another provocative question via Twitter. This was from Dr. Monica Gandhi from the University of California, San Francisco. Uh, She noted that all six of the vaccines with late stage trial results had prevented 100 percent of covid hospitalizations and deaths. She noted that we need to, quote, stop dissing vaccines and EUA them all like now within two weeks, end quote. What do you think about that? Well, so the the role of the FDA and the FDA advisory committee is to stand between pharmaceutical companies and the public to make sure the public is protected. The best way to do that is to look at all the data. I think once the the EUA is submitted, usually the FDA will work night and day to try and get through all those data. And then within a week or so, then present those data to the, the FDA vaccine advisory committee. We meet for a day. Um, then the FDA, usually over a two or three day period, will then take into consideration our recommendation. Then it goes to the CDC, specifically the advisory committee for immunization practices. And usually within a period of five days from when the FDA advisory committee first meets to when vaccines roll off the shelf is, is, is only a period of about five days. So that's pretty darn fast. I don't think it's going to be much faster than that. But in any case, all those data need to be reviewed. You just can't trust the uh, press releases. Just a quick follow up to that. I mean, you see the the Oxford vaccine on the market already in uh, in the UK and in other places. The you know critics of the pace of the FDA's process would say we're losing three thousand people per day. You know what's the harm in approving faster? What what would you say to that? Well, I mean, you could made the same case for thalidomide. I mean, thalidomide was approved in Europe well before it was approved here. We we had a much more rigorous process. I think, as historian Michael Harris says, the history of drug regu- regulation is built on tombstones. You want to make sure that you mitigate risk as much as possible before you put something out into the arms of the American public. Um, while this this is a devastating pandemic, one thing you certainly don't want to do is to put a vaccine on the market that has not been adequately tested. Most important for safety and then for efficacy, because I think if we end up putting a vaccine on the market that causes a serious permanent side effect, you are going to scare people about vaccines. And vaccines are the one way we have to get out of this pandemic. So speaking of the United Kingdom and getting back to that AstraZeneca preprint, 
uh, within there, the Oxford vaccine appeared to work better when the two doses were spaced 12 weeks or more apart, which the authors say supports the UK strategy of giving more people first doses immediately and delaying second doses. Do you think that's evidence that we should consider such a practice in the United States? Well, we have two vaccines in the United States. We have two mRNA vaccines. Um, we know that when both doses are given, they're 95% effective. We don't really have data on one dose. Um, we also know that, that set in the phase one studies that the second dose clearly gave you much, much higher titered immunity and clearly induced so-called T-cell immunity, which, which I think suggests more long-lived immunity, meaning a memory response. So I think what the CDC has offered is that, that you don't have to necessarily get that second dose three weeks later, four weeks later, you can get it six weeks later, but they didn't suggest going anywhere past that because the concern would be that people would think, well, I got one dose, it's 80% effective, two doses, 95% effective, close enough. I had some side effects with that first dose while well, I just skipped the second dose. And thus, we will have people who think they're they're fully protected when they're not. I think that uh, it's a two-dose vaccine. Rochelle Walensky, who's head of the CDC, was on CNN the other day saying exactly that. It's a two-dose vaccine. and We need to know that. And do you think we will reach herd immunity, given what we know about the vaccines and transmission? I guess maybe asked another way is, um, can you please tell Damien, Meg, and I when we'll be able to get together at a bar for cocktails? <laughs> no, I, I'm I'm going to sound a note of optimism. First of all, you have two vaccines that are that are excellent. You have a couple more vaccines, and maybe even more than that, that will probably be coming on the market soon. Um, three, the weather's getting warmer. These viruses aren't transmitted as easily in hot and humid climates. That's good. Um, and also the, the other thing is that, you know, roughly 26 million people are said to have been infected in this country. Those are people who have just been tested and found to be infected. Uh, many people who have asymptomatic or mild disease never got tested. If you do antibody surveillance studies, you find that that 26 million figure is probably off by a factor of three, at least. So you're talking about 75 million people who've already been infected and are essentially immune, at least to get getting severe disease associated with re-exposures. That's 20% of the population already. So we have to get to 70%. I think if we can get to two and a half to three million doses a day, and we're getting there, we're at about 1.35 million doses a day. I, I really do think we can get control of this by the late summer, and then you can all go out to a bar and celebrate. And we'll invite you. I'm there. Well, Dr. Offit, thank you for the note of confidence or of optimism to end this. And thank you so much for joining us today. My pleasure. Take care. Over the past few years, the FDA has approved more than 150 products that claim to use artificial intelligence to improve human health, whether by diagnosing disease or guiding the process of treatment. But the actual evidence supporting those approvals is a bit of a mess, with lots of variance in sample size and research methods that makes it exceedingly difficult for doctors and patients to figure out whether a given AI tool is actually beneficial. That's according to a story this week from Stats' Casey Ross, who poured over hundreds of pages of FDA documents in the reporting process. He joins us now to share what he learned. Casey, welcome back to the podcast. Hey, guys. Thanks for having me. So people are generally familiar with the FDA review process when it comes to new drugs which is fairly standardized and predictable. How is the process different for AI tools? Well, it's neither uh, standardized nor predictable. <laughs> the regulatory framework that the FDA is using uh, to assess AI tools is still very much in flux. Uh, they're trying to figure out how to go about regulating these products that are uh, don't have the same risk profile as drugs or as uh, traditional devices. Uh, most of the products are being routed through the 510K pathway, which is uh, sort of requires a lesser standard of proving substantial equivalence to products that are already on the market. So these 
developers of AI tools are not being required to show that they can demonstrably improve care. It's uh, more that their products are similar to others that have come before them. Uh, so it doesn't sort of require they reach a higher evidence threshold. So you dug through those supporting documents for 161 AI products that were cleared between 2012 and 2020. And in your story, you wrote that, you know, what you found is that the body of evidence, quote, more resembles the building of a frontier town with hastily bolted on porches and uneven roof lines than a standardized approach to assuring safety, efficacy, and fairness. So, you know, obviously that's a lot of documents to go through and, and I'm kind of putting you on the spot, but what did you find when you did this work? Yeah, I mean, it was chaotic when you look through uh, the documents. The sample sizes uh, used to validate different AI tools are, are wildly different. Even within the same product category, the FDA organizes these um, products through product codes. And even when you look in the same product code, so for example, uh, products that fit under the, a code designed to deal with uh, head CT images. The sample sizes used to validate those tools vary widely from, you know, thousands to in the tens. One didn't have any validation that was provided. Uh, and then when you look at other categories, such as the, the validation of the data set, the composition of those data sets, for example, were they broken down by gender and race? Uh, in only seven out of the 161 instances, filings I looked at was the racial demographics of the data set broken out. Uh, so there's just a lot of holes in the data, a lot of variation in the process for reviewing it uh, that raises some important questions. In many cases, the lack of FDA vetted data on these products leaves hospitals, doctors, and patients to sort out for themselves whether a given AI tool might actually be useful and cost effective. Casey, how are they approaching that conundrum? Well, it's unclear. Sort of the uptake of the these products is hard to figure out because a lot of hospitals are sort of adopting them on an experimental or a trial basis, and then they're not transparent about that. That's not announced. If you ask the companies to say, hey, how many hospitals are you deployed in? They'll give you maybe a number or a vague number, but then if you ask them, okay, well, which hospitals are those? They'll say, well, I, I can't tell you that because of you know the, the confidentiality of my agreement with a hospital. So you don't really know. But then when you look at uh, other metrics, the American uh, College of Radiology, for instance, did a survey of its members. Radiology is the space in which AI is really making the most inroads. Only about 23% of the radiologists that they surveyed had even used uh, AI tools, and most of them are saying that they find it unreliable. So part of the underlying issue is that the FDA approaches these AI tools the same way it regulates medical devices, but some experts you spoke with said the FDA should instead treat them more like human beings applying for a job. What did they mean by that? Yeah, because these products are fundamentally different from devices or drugs in that they they act as intermediaries uh, between the doctors and the device. So the AI algorithm is reading data that is coming off the device and sort of showing the doctor uh, sort of a hidden dimension of data or patterns within the data that the doctor cannot see. And so you're really trying to assess these products in a different way by asking different questions. It's almost more akin to licensure. You wanna know where was this entity, where was this person, where was this uh, algorithm trained? What data was it trained on? How rigorous and expansive was the data? Is the data uh, you know, broken down in various ways that, that sort of display the rigor of the training? Uh, so it's more about 
asking questions like the ones you would ask a human than sort of vetting a device or a drug. So I wonder, what is the political angle to all of this? You mentioned in your story that the the Trump administration put out an 11th hour rule that would have further deregulated medical AI products. And and that idea is almost certainly going nowhere under President Biden. But I wonder, you know, in a more detailed sense, are there signs that the new administration uh, might want to change how the FDA looks at AI? Or is there, you know, pressure coming from the outside? You know, as you mentioned, a lot of these discrepancies relate to issues of equity, uh, specifically in race and gender. And I just wonder, you know, is, is there sort of a critical mass of, of pressure building up either politically or externally that might alter how this process is done in the future. Yeah, the Trump administration's proposal was really focused on the fact that there are a lack of adverse events that are tied to these various medical AI products. Uh, but that's not really a very valid measure because you can't tell from the way that these products are used often whether they're associated with adverse events. In many cases, doctors and patients don't even know that the AI tools are being used. So it's very hard to sort of parse out, are they related to adverse events that might be happening? Um, And then when you bring that to the Biden administration, I think he's had a real focus so far in, in his administration on really establishing greater equity in the way that people are cared for through the healthcare system. And uh, I, I think that they're unlikely to sort of say, oh, well, you know what, we don't need to look at this particular lane because there is such a potential for uh, disequity happening through the proliferation of these kind of tools. Casey, thanks for your time today. Thanks for having me on. That does it for another episode of The Read Out Loud. Thank you to Teresa Gaffney for producing this week's episode. Our senior producers are Hyacinth Embonado and Alyssa Ambrose. And our executive producer is Rick Burke. And as always, we'd love to hear from you. Tell us what you liked about this week's episode, what you didn't like, and whether you'd vote for Ken Frazier. You can do all of that by sending us an email at readoutloud at statnews.com. And if you like what we do, leave a review or rating on Apple Podcasts or whichever platform you use to get your podcasts. See you next week.